Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here today with Roy Ginsberg. So Roy is a coach and consultant that helps law firms exit their practice, which you know I, I think is something that a lot of people might be thinking of with everything that's going on in the world. But um, I thought I'd have him on to talk about this. And um, thanks a lot for showing up, Roy. You're welcome. Glad to be here. All right, awesome. So we always like to start off with a bit of the background story. So um, pretty interesting place that you found yourself as far as helping law firms out. But um, would you mind telling us how you got here? I'll try to give the short version. 20 years of a pra- being a practicing lawyer, both in a big firm, small firm, and then in-house, mostly doing employment law. Then 15 years ago is when I went out on my own to become a coach and consultant. And the last, and I, so I work with law firms and lawyers on issues such as practice management, business development, career decisions. But I've been spending more and more time uh, helping senior lawyers, solo practitioners, as well as small firm owners figure out their exit strategies as they are nearing retirement. Right. Awesome. So, I mean, you speak to a lot of people that are doing this, I'm sure, in the, in the kind of day to day. So I guess like what's the main thing that happens when people, you know, what, what leads people to consider selling their firm and what usually happens if they don't end up taking any action to, to, to work with a professional on this? Well, if, if they don't do anything and they die at their desk, uh, typically they're going to leave a mess. <laughs> uh, more often than not for the spouse and or heirs. I've been involved in matter, matters where you can just tell the uh, uh, once talked to a son who was a lawyer of the father who passed away unexpectedly. And the, the firm was, in a, he was left in a mess and he had to clean it up. And it was very, you can sense in the phone call how angry he was at his father for leaving such a mess. And this guy was a lawyer. I can only imagine how the spouse who's grieving, who's not a lawyer, uh, deals with that, is, is, is the appeal. Clients are disappointed if there's no you know, transition put into place, especially if you are more proactive and go out and find the successor for the, as if you're a solo or a small firm owner. Uh, you're essentially vetting counsel for your clients, and they've gotten your, your approval because a lot of lawyers, quite frankly, don't want to leave their uh, clients high and dry. So when they don't have a succession plan in place, that's what they do. They leave them high and dry. Right. Okay. So it's definitely, you know, aside from the fact that it's probably nice to, uh, you know, uh, get a check rather than just flip the sign over to, uh, to close at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's sort of a moral obligation to making sure that you're transitioning out of the practice well. So yeah, and I think it, you can look at the ethics rules in most states and you can certainly uh, figure out that there is some sort of even an ethical obligation not to leave a mess if you uh, pass. Okay, gotcha. So yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think about the, the kind of person who would be thinking about shutting things down. So, you know, basically, you know, obviously you don't want to die at your desk, but for somebody who might be reaching, you know, what they think is the twilight of the, their career, what are kind of the first steps that something somebody would want to take if they wanted to go down that path? Well, the first thing they got to think about is whether their firm is going to have value. Got to think about how long you want to work. Do you have potential successors in mind, be they internal or external? Lots of things. I, I recommend that lawyers seriously start thinking about it at age uh, 65. Uh, I think the new 70 seems to be the new 65, from what I can tell anecdotally. And so I think you should think about it. I got a call, uh, you know, today, as a matter of fact. Actually, I think this was the oldest lawyer who has asked about, inquired about my services, and he was 88. 
they actually he sounded like he was all there. Sometimes I've had lawyers call me, and it's very obvious that they lost some of their mental uh, capacities. But that's you know this guy's not serious about anything if he's waiting till eighty eight. So, but those are the things uh, that people ought to be thinking about. Yeah. And like, what practices would you say have the most value? I mean, people definitely thinking about the dollar sign on a purchase, but like, you know, what are the tendencies of you know, practices that are, are able to sell for good multiple? Okay. I think the simplest way to look at that is imagine you're uh, a lawyer on Friday afternoon, uh, decide to retire on a nice long holiday weekend, like uh, we're talking now. And you ride off into retirement and now it's Monday morning or in this case, Tuesday morning, because you have a long holiday weekend and you, you're the person you sold the firm to was sitting in your chair. And let's say you sold to me, sell to Roy Ginsburg. So I answer the phone and I say, hi, this, this is Roy Ginsburg. No, let's say I bought your firm, Jan. This, uh, I'm looking for Jan. Is Jan there? No, no, no. This is Roy. Uh, I bought Jan's practice. Can I help you? And let's assume I have all of you know, the various qualifications that, of course, you did. Uh, then the $64,000 question is, will that person work with me? And of course, the answer that I always give and tell audiences, is the, which is the answer lawyers give their clients all the time, is it depends. So what does it depend on? It depends on the nature of the practice. Will they work? For example, if I am a prominent litigator in town or the best, one of the better criminal defense lawyers, typically that person is calling, let's say that, that, that criminal defense lawyer is you, Jan. They, they call up and they hear I'm Roy Ginsburg. No, no, no. They wanted Jan. They're going to go to the next person on their referral list. They're not going to work with me. But there are some other businesses where, in fact, depending on the nature of the practice area, uh, they will work with me. And then, so in other words, there's what I call predictable revenue. So those firms that seem to have predictable revenue. Now, let me give you some examples now of some practice here. Estate planning is actually my poster child, exhibit A for a firm that at least in theory should have considerable value. Now, why is that? Well, if you buy a practice from an estate planning lawyer, presumably they have, you know, maybe hundreds, perhaps even thousands of wills sitting there in, in files. Now, you and I both know, everybody knows who's tuning in and listening that out of those, let's say, thousand files, you know, some of those people, if they're marketed to properly, will come back and get the wills revised. In other words, there should be continuing revenue. And also, some of those people may pass away. And then, of course, there's some probate work to be done. Now, will they work with the successor? I think in a lot of instances, yes, when the selling lawyer introduces uh, the buying lawyer to the past clients. In other words, when the buying lawyer comes in and takes over the practice, there's a, you know, a notice sent out. Maybe they do some other marketing. And I think that since, most, since there's this validation of the buyer by the seller, and most people, the reality is they don't like, it's not a lot of fun hunting and shopping for a lawyer. They'll just trust and say, yeah, I, I might as well, you know, I'll give Roy a try, at least for this will revision. If he seems like a nice guy, I'll, I'll stick with him. It's almost like some of you have experienced when your dentist or any sort of doctor retired, uh, you usually give them a chance once uh, or your CPA retires I, uh, or your, my situation, my barber recently retired. So I, you know, I'll give that person at least one shot. So I think the same thing holds true for, for lawyers. Yeah. And as far as like that transition process, it seems like there's probably a, you know, a lot of variables involved. And I guess, you know, the person who's passing off the business, the person who's receiving the business, what kind of, have you seen any sort of best practices in, in terms of how that handoff is done? Well, again, it's going to depend on the nature of the practice area. For example, talking about the estate planning, there's not much of a transition that needs to be a, occur. 
Now contrast that, let's say another kind of practice that, that should on paper have considerable value. Let's say you represent a lot of small businesses. You, you have a dozen, each of them you know, provide you know, 10, 20, 30, $40,000 of revenue per year. Uh, and you sell the firm. And you have, so you have 12 you know, relationships that you need to transfer to the buyer. Now again, you can make some uh, estimate about how many of them are gonna wanna work with the buyer with the proper introductions and things like that. So in other words, there's, there's time and effort that needs to go into the transition. That could be months, sometimes it takes even longer for a more sophisticated you know, kind of practice. But again, that, uh, so you ask you know, what needs to be done during the transition, that, you know, that and, it's, and depending on the, the personalities involved, the, the industries involved, that could take a lot of time or it could take very, very little time. It, again, it's going to, you know, depend. Yeah. And another kind of question that's related to that is, you know, you know, as far as valuing law firms and stuff like that, you know, there's, there's obviously some very niche things that'll change that versus insert business that people are just buying based on the cash flow or whatever. So another thing that's kind of related to that. So with this transition period being kind of challenging, you know, one of the things you hear about in acquisitions in other markets is something related to a buyout. So, or sorry, not a, not a buyout, but an earnout. So do you right. see earnouts or washout periods or something that's contingent on part of the sale being on how these things end up tra- transitioning? What do you see usually for, for us? Yeah. So the reality is that there, if you have to remember, Jan, the, the uh, DNA of lawyers is they're extraordinarily risk averse. So it's rare to find a buyer that will just, you know, they'll agree to a fixed price and write a check and everybody goes their merry way. They are willing, what most buyers, uh, lawyer buyers, that is, uh, are willing to do is, you know, pay somewhat how a percentage of future revenue for a, you know, a negotiated amount of time with the idea that, yeah, I'm more than happy to pay the seller, but only if the business, if the business does come. In other words, if those wills get revised or people, some of those clients, you know, pass away and, and uh, need, need probate. It's like I say, and one thing I, I want to emphasize is that the marketplace for law practices is a very, very, very immature one. Uh, unlike, let's say, dentists and CPAs, where those kind of practices are bought and sold all the time. Uh, law practices, it's still a relatively new phenomena. And when you think about uh, law practices, they, they have more differences than anything in common. So sometimes com- comparing you know, two similarly sized firms with revenues, it's oftentimes comparing apples and oranges. Even within practice areas, let's say you, you do estate planning slash elder law, and an elder law the revenue is 90% versus 10% of just doing, you know, let's say probing or what you vary the percentages of what an estate planning emphasize, whether it be a probate, estate planning or elder law, you know, the profitability and all that kind of stuff, there can be fundamentally different kinds of businesses. Right. And the other thing too, is that like, you know, we've, we've kind of talked a lot about the existing book of business, but like, what are the other like key assets in a firm that, that could boost up the value? You know, sometimes you have the, the location, but rarely most people are going to, uh, you know, just want to know who the, uh, who the clients are. Actually, in small towns, there can be some brand value to the name. I was once involved in a situation where it was a small town lawyer, and this is, this is a third generation law firm in a, very, in a relatively small town. So when people hear that last name, they automatically assume, you know, they think legal, they think law firm. So, uh, so the buyer was, of course, was very interested to, you know, one of the things that enhanced the value was attaching the, the buyer's name to, of course, the seller's name. And this, that's perfectly ethical to do. Now, so in other words, there's value there, but I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, how much does that add to the value of the law firm? 
And I just know it makes it, it certainly, it makes it certainly more attractive uh, when you have uh, a name like that. One thing that a lot of lawyers overestimate uh, as far, overestimate the impact on the value of a firm is the system. In other words, I've had lawyers, I have a system to do this, I have a system to do that, and they somehow think that it's going to enhance the value. You know, lawyers being lawyers think their own system is, is good enough. And the, the, the last thing they want to do is pay someone for someone else's system. Of course, there are exceptions to that rule, but the vast majority is not the case. A question that often comes up is, you say, as far as valuing, and uh, is the office mentioned sometimes the office location, and sometimes if you have a long-term lease, that that could detract from the value. Or if you make the sale of the law firm contingent on purchase of the building, that's going to probably make the, uh, the law firm less attractive because a lot of those buying lawyers already have their officing situation set up. They're just looking for ways to you know, improve the revenue, get in some new clients. They're not looking for a new location. Right. And I know we've kind of talked a lot about the outright sale of the firm, but what other kind of situations could somebody find with in terms of, you know, exiting the practice? Well, of course, there are some that, you know, will just slowly stop taking cases and, you know, close up shop. And uh, I always tell people that you ought to certainly consider selling rather than going that way, because if you close up the right way, it's a pain in the neck. Because uh, some people hear what you need to go through to sell a firm and they think, I don't want to, you know, sounds like too much effort. Well, if you close it down the way you're supposed to, and it, 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 it's a lot of effort, particularly when it comes to old client files. One of the advantages of doing some sort of sale or transaction is uh, the old files that people have sitting around uh, are now the, the buyer's problem, you know, not, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know not, the, not the seller's problem. That's kind of interesting. And then like, what about like going internal with a larger firm or something like that? Do you ever have clients that do that? Yeah, sometimes the most, like usually the best buyers are going to be friendly competitors. And on occasion, the friendly competitor is going to be a larger firm. And usually the biggest problem with joining a bigger firm is sometimes there's, there's rate issues, but sometimes there aren't. And that could be a good, uh, you know, a good home. And typically what happens then is the smaller owner or the solo closes down his or her firm. But gradually, basically, you, you, you become an employee of the of the buying, essentially the buying firm, and uh, you close down your existing firm basically just to uh, collect the receivables. Uh, then you join the other firm in an of counsel role, and essentially the deal is the of the compensation arrangement that you make with the new firm for your book of business. So that's the, so there is no formal sale transaction, but as a practical matter, uh, you're you know selling your selling your practice to the bigger firm uh, and going of counsel. And the of counsel role doesn't necessarily only have to be with a, uh, a bigger, you know, a larger firm. You can do an of counsel role with, uh, you know, you can sell your firm to a solo and be an of counsel to the new solo buying or small firm. Owner. So it's not as a title exclusively used with bigger firms. Right. And then um, just kind of to talk about a little bit more about those potential exits. I mean, we've, we've talked about buyers a lot as well, but um, what about internal successors? So I, I can think of a couple of conversations I've had with people who have come through just for marketing services, but you know, um, two different, very contrasting situations. So one was a gentleman I spoke with from California um, and he was kind of freaking out because basically, uh, you know, he had a partner that was younger than him. He was, you know, I think uh, in the seventies, his partner wasn't like you know, approaching retirement age as well. 
but they had been trying to hire somebody for years to eventually, you know, take over the firm, but just weren't able to find somebody to, to fill. And then um, another uh, firm owner I actually spoke to this morning, um, this guy was outside of uh, North Carolina, but he had actually found that great associate who was, she was, he was grooming to, uh, to eventually take over the practice. So what do you see as far as transitioning things internally? Like if you're that person who's maybe 65 and not really having a person in, in mind for internal, is, is that too late or what would you recommend to that person? Like it depends, everything else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, oftentimes I'm hired by lawyers that they, they, you know, have one or two people have identified, they do have good business sense, they have a marketing sense, uh, and they hire me basically to give them an idea of what the firm is worth, how much is the internal people should it be costing them to buy them out? And just to basically give a, a green light to their, you know, their impression that someone is going, will be good to take it over. Oftentimes I get owners, they have good worker bees, but they'll also come to me and say, oh, you know, these, these people are going to run it into the ground. The last thing you want to do is a buyout to someone who's going to run it into the ground because ultimately it's going to be often these deals are structured where there'll be future earnings going to the uh, selling owner. So you don't want to you know, sell to someone who may be a good working lawyer, but not, you know, very competent. So in those situations, you go have to go, you know, external. You briefly mentioned, Jan, about this idea of going out and finding the successor. That is, and the idea there is you go out, you find somebody, you know, uh, probably on the younger end, uh, you, you, know, you date for two, three years, and then, uh, then gradually they buy you out. So done maybe over five or seven. The strategy is one that a lot of lawyers hear about, a lot of lawyers try, and those that try oftentimes fail. And when you, if you dig down a little bit deeper, it, it shouldn't be all that surprising why they fail. First of all, it's hard to find a good person, number one, uh, to, you know, to take over. Then number two, oftentimes if they're that young, you have to train. If you're a senior lawyer, you want to spend the last few years of your career training somebody in. Uh, that's going to take a lot of extra time. Do you really want to spend that extra time uh, doing that? And then finally, they could, given the ethics rules that lawyers have, they could, you know, turn around, stab you in the back, and uh, you know, compete against you. Say, you know, never mind. I don't think this is working uh, out, out quite all right. And oftentimes, it's tried. Uh, you know, the final nail in the coffin. If if you're a solo and you try to find it, and you're making a nice living in the solo, uh, doing all the work. All of a sudden, you're you're adding payroll. So you have, you're hiring someone at fifty, seventy-five, a hundred thousand dollars, whatever it is, to do this work uh, that is going to impact your profitability for the for the few years. So you're paying, you know, essentially. Then that person buys you out. Essentially, you, you're you're funding your own retirement by paying this person when you really don't need that person. So it's a fundamentally flawed strategy. It rarely works. And when you hear about it, what typically happens is the lawyer needed somebody. 10, 15, 20 years ago, hired, and it just worked out that the person, you know, had the right stuff to take over the firm. But it's, you know, it's rarely that they hire that person with in mind that this person is going to be the successor, you know, maybe in the back of the mind. But the primary reason to hire was, uh, yeah, I needed help, legal help, and not is this person going to be a good successor or not. Yeah, it seems like a lot of weight to put on one person. I can kind of, <laughs> yeah, now that when you, when you say it out like that, Roy, it's like you can understand like a lot of that, that's a almost crushing weight of uh, expectations for that. But I'm um, kind of along those lines. I mean, like if, if this is something that's considered to be a good strategy generally, like what other are the big misconceptions do you see in how people are thinking about exiting their law practice? Misconceptions. Well, it's, it, it's like I say, it's an immature market. I'm learning. It's, it's harder to find, you know, buyers uh, than one would think 
so I think, you know, lawyers should start thinking, even in, even when they're five to 10 years out of who are they? And like I say, usually the best buyers are going to be friendly competitors. So think about that, whether who you may you know, want to approach when the time is right, uh, not necessarily do it earlier than, than you want to. And strategically, I just, I'm, uh, I'm working with a, uh, a younger lawyer now. Uh, he's not looking, uh, I'm look, you know, working on practice management issues with him. But one of our, the ways to build his practice is, you know, we're trying to devise a strategy of identifying uh, senior lawyers in his uh, market area uh, that are ripe for purchase. So in other words, he, he'll approach them and say, hey, what's your retirement plans? And oftentimes, a lot of lawyers don't even think they can get anything. So oftentimes, if you proactively go out, out, looking for firms as a younger lawyer, you can get them very much on the cheap. And, it, and it's a good way to build a practice. Yeah, that's really interesting. And as long as um, also kind of along those lines, like um, things that people might be shooting themselves in the foot and uh, you ever get to a situation where you've, if you realize that um, they've done something in the last couple of years that might have absolutely tanked the valuation of, of what they're expecting to get when they exit. Well, you know, I'm going to take your question and, and kind of flip it on its head. Because the question I often get asked is, all right, Roy, I think I'm three or four or five, um, you know, two, three, four years away from retirement. What do I do now to get it, you know, get it ready for sale? And I don't know if you remember, President Obama had a slogan for his diplomacy theory. And his, his theory was, don't do stupid. <laughs> um, and, that's a, and that's what I tell. And what is, you know, stupid is, you know, signing. I've had people come to me, they're 75 and they sign a five year lease. And they come to me when they're 76, and I'm thinking to myself, what were these people thinking? Uh, what, you don't want to you know, put in, do something like that. And my, and my theory about, yeah, it would be great if you put in this kind of system and improved your marketing, improved this and improved that. I'm a very much of a realist. These lawyers in the back of their minds have known for 30, 40 years that they should be doing this. What makes me think that I'm a consultant and I say, these are the things you should do. They're all of a sudden going to do it now that they're ready to retire. I mean, the time to do all that stuff is when you're, when you're actively practicing and, 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 and to make the money. I mean, the reality is there's money to be made. The, the money that a lawyer makes is while he's working. Don't, it's not like a lot of other businesses where you can build the equity and you can hopefully that it'll work out. I always tell lawyers that, yeah, if you can get, depending on the practice area, you can get a nice chunk of change and it will be worth it to, you know, to try to exit. By, uh, by selling and finding a successor, but it's, it's not going to be, you know, millions and millions of dollars. What I tell people who call me up and they say, this is, you know, selling your law firm is not going to be your Hail Mary test if you haven't saved for retirement. Now, will it pay for a lot of extra vacations and a nice little addition? Uh, maybe perhaps a, a second home, you know, maybe, maybe. But if you haven't saved for retirement, this is not going to, you know, save it. Right. And kind of, uh, I don't know if this is, this kind of like, you know, gets into the thing, but have you ever run into a situation where somebody may have thought that it would have been nice to kind of explore this, but, you know, ultimately the retirement is, is you know, something that they end up being scared of. What would you say to somebody like who's questioning whether they're ready for, for, the, for this step right now, as, as in ready for retirement? Well, one of, the, one of the things I'm learning, people never really know when they're ready for retirement. They think they do, and then and they retire, they're... Uh, you know, they get, they get, obviously many of them get restless. What I tell a lot of my more traditional coaching clients is, you know, practice retirement. See how you do on the long weekends. Have you ever been away for two or three weeks? If you get antsy then, you know, you're not well suited for retirement. Uh, I, you know, when I'm working with a selling client, I do, you know, go, I make sure they have, they have an idea of what they want to do and they're not just going cold turkey 
cold turkey rarely works for anybody, let alone lawyers who are typically type, you know, double A AA or triple A. Um, <laughs> so it's important to think about those, uh, you know, th those matters when, when you are considering yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So basically, if somebody's kind of get to the point and this is this is resonating with them, like what does the process really look like? I mean, if somebody wanted to get started, like what would be the next step? Well, the first thing you got to do is get an idea of what, if there's something worth selling. You know, I got off the phone with someone actually this morning that grosses, you know, seventy five to one hundred thousand dollars a year in a in a practice area that most of the clients have gotten off the web. The practice is worth virtually nothing. So you got to get a sense, you know, first thing of, of that. And contrast that, of course, with a state planning firm with, you know, hundreds of thousands of revenue. You got something there. Then you, so you had to have an idea of what, if, if the practice first has value. And then you got to start thinking about who that potential successor could be, how to find the buyers. You know, I'll be the first to tell you, you at a certain level, you can do it yourself. But oftentimes it helps, you know, to have some assistance by a consultant. I will give you a, a, a heads up warning uh, to our the listeners. Uh, be wary of, business, of traditional business brokers. They oftentimes don't understand the nuances of the legal market. Some do, most don't. So uh, you may want to talk to them, but be very, very uh, you know, leery. And then once you identify the buyer, you got to structure the deal. How, what's your of counsel arrangement going to be? Is it going to be an outright sale? What's your transition going to be? I tell people as far as from start to finish, if all the stars are, are in a line, it could take this long. It takes about a year. And that's with everything going uh, your way. And it, most of the time, uh, something, you know, uh, you know, something happens that you didn't anticipate. So it moves it out to as long as 18 months to two years. So I'd say one to two years is a good you know, time frame. If you think, if you think now, you know, now, you know, if someone calls me now, it's, uh, it, you know, in May. And they want to get it done by the end of this year. I, I say it's virtually impossible. You can try, but very, very, very unlikely. Yeah, awesome. So, and as far as like, you know, I know we've, we've kind of, I probably missed a lot of really awesome questions to potentially ask you, Roy, but I mean, you have a lot of fantastic content on your website. So if, if somebody's looking to get some more information about you or what you do, what's the best way to, uh, to get in touch? Yeah, well, my, uh, the website is sellyourlawpractice.com. And if any of the listeners email me at Roy at RoyGinsburg.com, I will send you a complimentary copy of my ebook, Exit Strategies for Lawyers. That pretty much explains some of the things I talked about here uh, this afternoon, but uh, a lot of other topics that we didn't get a chance to uh, talk about are contained in the ebook. ebook. I'd be more than happy to send you a complimentary copy. All right. Awesome, Warren. Thank you so much for that offer. It's super generous. So, um, yeah, and it's been a really interesting conversation. So, um, yeah, for anyone just kind of thinking about it, I feel like uh, people are either too optimistic or, or not or not optimistic enough about how it's going to go. But, you know, it's just like anything else. It's a process that people can go to. And, you know, just like I'm sure you guys are, are, are used to dealing with your particular part of the law, expertise counts. You know, this isn't uh, the exact kind of thing that you could just do for our, um, Johnny the broker down the street. There's a lot more than, than cash flow that's stake for, for valuing these things. So. If uh, the expertise is something that's important, absolutely get into Roy's content and see what he's up to. And you know, if it makes sense, go ahead and reach out. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for taking the time today, Roy. My pleasure. Yeah. All right. And um, for the rest of you guys, we'll be back next week with another episode of Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast.
Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.